0: St. Paul's. We welcome all who are with us in the gymnasium here this morning. For those of you here in the gymnasium, we have sheets over on the side per usual that have the lessons printed out on them. And we welcome also, of course, our radio audience on 850 KFUO AM and also worldwide at KFUO.org. Today we are going to continue our tradition of looking at the scripture lessons that will be assigned for next Sunday So the lessons that uh, most of us will hear in, in worship on Sunday, March 4, the third Sunday in Lent. And before we jump into God's Word, let's have a word of prayer together. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your great mercies to us, for your grace, that even while we were yet sinners, your Son died for us, and that through him we have been pronounced not guilty in your sight. We thank you also for your word and for the opportunity to study it here this morning. We pray you send your Holy Spirit to, to bless our study, to lead us into deeper knowledge and truth concerning you and your will for us as your children here. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right, we'll take a look. First of all, we're going to our Old Testament lesson is going to actually be the Ten Commandments. So uh, I see a challenge here of uh, not saying too much so that we don't, we don't even get to the other lessons, and I'll try to, I'll try to restrict myself <laughs> a bit, but uh, this is the, the next Sunday, we will got all 10. I kind of wish these were divided up a little bit, you know, maybe maybe three consecutive Sundays, but they're all in one Sunday. So uh, we'll try to persevere and get through. Uh, let's read the Collect first of all at the top of the page. This will begin for next week. Uh, It says there, O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word. So we see there kind of the idea, not only those who have, you might say, permanently gone astray. But you can think of that as sort of a, the, the whole process of the Christian life, of, of one of repentance and returning to God uh, and, again, receiving his mercy and his forgiveness. So certainly very applicable as we speak about the Ten Commandments, and we'll speak uh, in the Gospel lesson about the cleansing of the temple or the clearing of the temple. Uh, before we delve into the commandments, let's just do a little review. This is a good opportunity uh, for a little bringing back to mind some of our confirmation uh, class learning. But uh, the uh, three uses of the law, first of all, we talk about the law, and, uh, law of God. And uh, recall that the first use of the law is the use that we sometimes call the societal use of the law, mainly that all of our laws, all of our rules and regulations, or at least most of them, I shouldn't say all probably anymore, but most of them, uh, have as their basis the law of God. And we call that the societal use of the law, meaning that even society, most societies, uh, it is held to be wrong to to kill, to steal, uh, you know, all based again on the bedrock of God's law to us. And so it it curbs, we might say it curbs uh, gross outbursts of sin. Just imagine what living and society would be like if we didn't have that understanding based on God's word. It would be sort of survival of the fittest and and life as if we were in a jungle Uh, and and yet, again, God blesses us with his word and that law pertains to society. But then we have the second use of the law and that is the one I think with which we're most familiar and the one that uh, is, is one of the chief uses of the law and that is to show us our sin. Uh, We call that the the accusing use of the law, or the accusatory use of the law. It tells me that I am a sinner. When I read God's word, I see my own sin in that word. Uh, As Pastor Smith said in the the sermon, if you were at the uh, 8 o'clock service today, that, you know, in, in light of God's word, we're so bad that we wouldn't even know that we were sinners if it wasn't for God's word telling us that we are. I mean, that's how far gone we are uh... by conception and birth and uh... so that's the chief use of the law is to point us uh... to to point out our sin and point out our need for a savior now the third use of the law we call the christian use of the law and that serves as a guide for us as we live our lives as christians after god has called us to faith in jesus christ and we now want to please him, we want to live a life that's pleasing in his sight, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is pleasing to God? Where do I go to find that? I go to his law, where he instructs me on what is pleasing in his sight. Now, we sometimes refer to those three uses as, anybody remember this, the curb, which curbs gross outbursts of sin, that's the first use. Second use, do you remember what we call that, the one that shows us our sin? Mirror, right. So I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror, and there I am, right? Exactly as I am. Uh, And then the last one, the Christian use of the law, we call a guide, usually. So curb, mirror, and guide is maybe a fast, easy way to remember that. But that's the three uses of God's law. Now, sometimes in a sermon, the pastor can be preaching it as a third use of the law. In other words, he can be preaching it that, you know, this is what God would ask us to do, as his children, as his people here, but when I think of what I've done and haven't done, that can change, can it, and it can hit me as showing me my sin. So these, these can, uses can go back and forth depending sometimes on what I have done or haven't done. The pastor may intend it as third use of the law to serve as a guide for us, but then it hits me and I think, uh-oh, that's actually pointing out my sin to me, okay? All right. Now let's jump into the Ten Commandments themselves. And by the way, the Ten Commandments aren't the only law of God, but this is a good, uh, good point to talk about it. We normally divide the Ten Commandments up into two tables of the law. So let's go back to confirmation class once again. The first table of the law, which commandments are in the first table of the law? One through three. And that deal, these commandments deal with our relationship with God. Okay. Then, obviously, 4 through 10 are in what we call the second table of the law. They deal with our relationship with others, with our neighbor, okay? So normally they're divided up in that way. All right, let's jump in then to Exodus chapter 20. And God has already freed his people from their slavery in Egypt. He has brought them out, you remember, miraculously through Moses, his leader, uh, and parted the Red Sea and uh and at the same time when the pursuing egyptian armies came he he collapsed those waters down upon them so it was totally god's acting on behalf of his people to bring them their freedom and their release from slavery so starting at verse 1 of exodus 20 and god spoke all these words saying i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Is that law or gospel? Is that bad news or good news? Good news. That's the gospel. The reason I say this is, it's not that these commandments that he's going to give them, he's not saying to them, if you do this, if you do these things, then I will be your God and then you will be my people. He's already claimed them as his people. He's already led them out of their slavery in Egypt, okay? So sometimes these are misunderstood by people that, well, I've got to toe the line, and then God will love me, then God will receive me and be my God, and I'd be his uh, child. No, God's already called his people, okay? Kind of parallel to the epistle lesson for today, where Paul writes in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All right, so, first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally, if we were translating it uh, from the Hebrew, it would be, You shall have no other gods before my face or in front of my face is the way it it literally translates. Okay? And going on, just to fill out here, uh, verse uh, uh, 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, one comment here. Lutherans and Catholics divide up the commandments in the same way. Uh, If you go to a reformed church, you will find that they divide the commandments in a different way. For us, as Lutherans and Catholics, we take the first commandment to be, you shall have no other gods for me. And we take the second commandment to be, what's coming up yet, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you go to a reformed church, they will take the same first commandment, I uh, have no other gods before me, but then see where verse 4 starts, they will make that commandment number 2. We take verses 4, 5, and 6 simply to be commentary on the, what we say is the first commandment. Okay? So there's a, I just want to point out to you, there's a difference in numbering. And sometimes uh, you know, you'll look at a list and you'll say, wait a minute, that's not, that's not the way we learn the commandments. Well, then you've got to say, well, gee, then do the Reformed have 11 commandments? No. They combine all the command, our commandments 9 and 10, the way we look at commandments 9 and 10 dealing with coveting, they combine all that in one commandment, okay? So we start out the same. We part ways at commandments 2, uh, two and, well, 1 and 2, and then we come all together again at the end. We both have 10, and again, it's the same word of God. It's just a different way of dividing it up, Okay? There's no right way or wrong way, it all ends up in the same, in the same way, all right? Now, uh, this first one is, of course, the most uh, important in a couple of ways. First of all, it's ironic that God says you're not to make any uh, carved image, any likeness of anything. What are the people of God just a few chapters away from doing there at Mount Sinai at this point? What are they going to do? Make a golden calf. I mean, this is just so ironic that God tells them this, and they're about to make a golden calf. And, uh, you know, almost comical that uh, they bring all their gold, and remember, Aaron uh, assists this whole process. And then when Moses comes down to confront Aaron, remember what he says? Oh, I don't know, you know, we just put all this gold into the fire, and out came the golden calf. (laughs) It's almost comical to read, as if I didn't have anything to do with it. Don't blame me. and, and yet, you know, again, uh, it just seems like when you look at human history that we are so prone to make false gods. They're not really gods, are they? There's only one God. But to make false gods. I often, uh, you know, I've done this in a sermon before. I said, you know, we, we look at the people who made a golden calf and fell down and worshipped it and say, really? You really thought that was a god who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? And then I'll say something like, isn't it good that we don't make gods out of metal today and fall down and worship them? Or do we? Uh, You can make almost anything into a god, a false god in your life. And again, I hate to harken back to, uh, I don't hate to harken back to confirmation. What does Luther say? Uh, We should do what? Fear, love, and trust in God above all things in his explanation of the first commandment. Now, can we all perfectly do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Unfortunately not. I wish we could. pray that we could. Um, and also, Luther had another insight that if you break commandments 2 through 10, which commandment have you actually broken before you've broken 2 through 10? One. How so? Who have you made a god? Yourself. Yourself. You've said, what I want and what I desire is more important than what God wants and God desires. And that's always the way with sin. It turns us in on ourselves and our own desires and our own wants and away from the true God. And remember, what was the very first temptation to Eve? God, Satan says, God just knows that in the day you eat of this, you'll be just like... God, right and unfortunately that's been our desire ever since ever since that fall into sin okay so the first commandment is it is no uh, obviously very appropriate to be the first commandment it is the base uh, in our relationship with God and then going down you know it, it again we take verses 3 through 6 simply to be commentary or more explanation on that first commandment on uh, verse 3 And um, keep in mind verse 5, we're going to come again, where it says, God is a jealous God. Now, some might misinterpret that. Now, wait a minute. God is a jealous God. How would we interpret that? In other words, God is not willing to share us with anything, any object, any person, any living or inanimate object. He alone is God and will not share us with any other false gods. So that's kind of what, what that means, okay? Um, another thing I always like to point out is that in verse 5, it's not that where, where it says there, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's, Does God punish the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren for the sins of their uh Great grandparents? No, it's noticed there, of those who hate me. They are still hating him at that point. And the contrary is true as well. He says, of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, So it's not that we transfer guilt. Uh, you're, not, you're not held for the sins of your great grandparents. Okay? All right, let's go on to number two, the second commandment, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, what does it mean to take the, the name of God in vain? If we were going to explain that to a Sunday school child, how would we explain that? What does that mean? To take his name in vain or use his name in vain? No values, no purpose. Okay, so the idea of using it to no purpose, to no avail, uh, in a... In a way that we're not, as Luther would say, uh, calling on him in prayer, praise, thanksgiving. And I would agree with that. If we do something in vain, in other words, if I try to play golf in the PGA tournament this afternoon, (laughs) I would say, I'm playing in vain. Meaning, I'm playing, it's it's a needless, futile effort. I'm never going to compete with the guys on the tour, right? So when I use God's name in vain, I'm using it needlessly. I'm using it in a futile way. When I do not have to, I'm not calling upon him, I'm not addressing him or thanking or praising him, I might be using his name merely to punctuate a sentence, thinking that by doing so, I'm putting more emphasis behind what I'm saying. And God is saying here that that's not the way my name is to be used. My name is to be above every name. You only use it when you're speaking about me, teaching about me, or calling upon me. You don't use it in a frivolous, uh, sort of almost throwaway kind of of way in our lives. And I know that um, this is one thing that, uh, unfortunately, you hear uh, more often than we would like to admit. And I've even heard it here on, on the church property. And it, it always kind of jerks my attention when I hear it. And I, I realize that some people get into a habit and I think maybe don't even realize that they're doing this when they do it. It's become so uh, like a habit or a common place to them. But you know, again, God is saying that my name is to be used in a much different, higher, respectful way uh, than any other name. OK? Um, and so, also going on then, uh, verse eight, the third commandment, the last one in the third in the first table, dealing with our relationship with God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So remember the Sabbath day. So is, is God saying here all we do is we wake up on the Sabbath and we remember that it's the Sabbath? Is that, is that how we remember the Sabbath day? Obviously more than that, right? In the scriptures, whenever God remembers something, it's always accompanied by action. In other words, it's not just that God contemplates something, remembers it. It always is, is resulting in action. Now, remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Let me ask you this. Why did God build a Sabbath day right into his creation? Why, did, why would he bother to put a day of rest from our usual work activities right into his creation the word sabbath means rest why why so why do you think Scott? yes it's a foreshadowing of the eternal rest that comes through jesus christ right and how about our day-to-day activities here what's that sabbath really supposed to be directed toward not just that we don't work and sit around on the sofa you know watching pga this afternoon Uh, Or or what's really supposed to be behind it? That time is is dedicated to what? Our relationship with God, right? And just think, if we didn't have that, just just think now how it is when we have a Sabbath day, right? How would it be if we didn't even have this in creation, right? And I'm not going to get on a rant about all the encroachments into the Sabbath day, Uh, the the scheduling of everything from sports activities and so on I uh, just you know one comment that when I was growing up you know Sunday was a day when you would you didn't even think of scheduling you know like little league baseball or soccer or anything on a Sunday because you knew you were were gonna get a half a team to show up because everybody was in in worship at least in the morning okay and uh, again we've seen that change uh, quite dramatically now let me ask you this Um, how do we uh, keep the Sabbath day holy? Luther again says, fear, love, and trust in God that we do not, what? We should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So how do we despise preaching and his word? don't come to church would be the first obvious way to do it i don't know if you uh, realize this you can you can violate this commandment even by coming to church Okay, so not coming to church is an obvious one yeah god's word is there and you know his, his holy supper is there but eh, i'm not going to bother today uh... second way you come to church and you're not not even listening right not even listening uh... third you come to church you listen but don't believe it. You know? Yeah, God says that, but eh, I don't think so. Fourth, <laughs> you come to church, you listen, you believe it, but you don't apply it to your life, right? Uh, and so those four ways we usually speak about about despising preaching and his word. And the opposite, then. Luther always gives us what you don't do and then what you do, but we hold it sacred. In other words, we hold it as holy and set apart and from God, and gladly hear and learn it. So, another thing, uh, and I wish we had more time. When when I was growing up, and many of you, uh, you know what the expression "blue laws" means. Yeah. That what are blue laws? On Sunday, what was open? Not much. Uh, most all of the stores were closed on Sunday. You never heard... I mean, gas stations might be open because people you know, needed gasoline and so on, but it was very minimal in terms of what was open. Grocery stores uh, were not open. Hardware stores were not open. Uh, and so on. Now, let me ask you this. Is it wrong to have a store uh, open on a Sunday? Is it wrong? No. Well, we... I, Technically speaking, it's, it's not wrong, is it? Because if, how do we keep the Sabbath day holy by gladly hearing and learning God's word? As long as that can take place, right? Now, the, the parts I feel bad about are when stores are open and employees are required to work in, you know, a number of hours that they simply can't. And that's how we, for example, at St. Paul's, have a service on Saturday night at five o'clock. I think that we looked at the origin of that. Uh, That would be the reason. And in other parts of the Saturday seems to be kind of a St. Louis thing in terms of when that other service is offered. Many other parts of the country will have a service on a Monday night or a Wednesday night or a Thursday night. But again, the idea is if you're going to be gone over the weekend, it's an opportunity to worship. Uh, the thing about Saturday night, it works well for those who may have to work, say, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, but if you're gone for the weekend, you're probably going to be gone on Saturday night as well. And that's the thinking behind it, like a Monday or a Wednesday or a Thursday that, you know, it gives you maybe more opportunity. But at any rate, uh, you know, our church body, the Lutheran Church Missouri Center, has not risen up in opposition to having things open on Sundays. Uh, again, that's that's not... The letter of the law, it is the the positive is, you know, gladly hearing and learning the word of God. And and then a store can be opened. Yes. Yes. The idea of a rest was uh, not doing any, uh, your normal work, your normal routine on that Sunday, but focusing that relationship on God. Now, by the time of of, uh, Jesus, this had been so legalized that the Pharisees, who were the main ones, and the Pharisees, you know, they had a good intention. Uh, It was strict adherence to the law of God. They felt this was pleasing in the sight of God. They were well-intended in their heart. But what they had done was taken the law of God, and it was, you know, basically... It was man serving the Sabbath instead of the Sabbath there to serve man. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says, that man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. So you had rules and regulations about how far you could travel from your home, and you couldn't go further than that circumference away from your home. Uh, They they got all over, remember the Pharisees got all, all over Jesus' disciples because they plucked grain as they walked along a road. Well, the Pharisees interpreted that that was harvesting. The separating of the wheat from the chaff, that was harvesting. And that was forbidden on the Sabbath day. And they confront Jesus about that. Uh, they confront Jesus about, about healing somebody on the Sabbath day. And you know it was, it, it was so legalized and became such a binding, restricting thing and again, Jesus tries to get through to them that that is not the purpose that these rules were established for, okay? So normal routines were to stop so that one could focus on relationship with God, okay? And that's, that's kind of the, the reason for it, okay? Uh, let's go to, we better move on. Now, second table of law, starting in verse 12, notice here, I always point out, who, is the fir- who are the first people in dealing with others that God points to, our parents. He says, it says here, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Interesting. What does it mean to honor your father and your mother? What might be a synonym for that word honor? Respect? Yeah. Revere? Yeah. And so um, uh, the idea of honoring, respecting, revering parents, uh, we normally think of bringing along with it things like certainly love, right? We hope that's there at the basis for it, but obedience also, right? And notice, um, notice that God does not say here, honor your father and your mother if they deserve it or if they earn it. You're honoring them because they are the people that God has used in the miracle of giving you life. God has involved your parents, when you think about it, in the, in the creating activity of life that brought you into this world. And that, uh, being used by God in that way, means that you recognize that and you honor them because God used them in that special way. Now, are all parents perfect? Do all parents, do some parents, mess up later really badly? Sure, that happens. Uh, Parents are sinners just like everybody else, right? But there's always that that honor and that respect for them, not because maybe they have earned it, but simply because of who they are and how God has used them. And we think about parents, God, beyond giving uh, us life, how else does God use parents as his instruments, his agents in this world, to do what for children? Teach them, especially, about the way to salvation, him and the way to salvation. Uh, Another way, when you stop and think about it, he uses parents as his agents to provide what? Discipline. Food, right? Daily bread. God uses parents. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. How does he do that for children? Through parents and a whole lot of other people before the parents buy the food at the store, right? Uh, And then you've got uh, the physical, clothing, shelter, right? So God uses parents in very special ways, and it's up to us to recognize them as God's agents. I'm not sure that that all children do that, right? And I, when uh, we come through confirmation class, at least, we try to point that out. Uh, now, let me ask you quickly, uh, are there times when those roles reverse in life, and children are providing those kinds of things for their parents? Yes, uh, especially as parents advance in years and get to the point where they may not be able to do at least all of those things or, or provide all those things very well for themselves anymore, uh, those roles can reverse. Everything from uh, bringing uh, mom and or dad to worship on Sunday when maybe they can't drive any longer, to uh, helping them with things around the house, shelter and so on that maybe they can't tend to very well anymore. So those roles can reverse and that's, that's all a part of honoring your father and your mother. So that, that never ends, does it? That's a lifelong honoring and cherishing of our parents. Okay, um, let's go, we better move on. Uh, verse 13, very, uh, look at that, how short and brief that is. You shall not murder. Well, we could going talk a long time about this. Uh, this comes, you know, as a basic understanding here is the foundation that all life is a gift from God. And that we are, as humans, are to do nothing that would either hurt or harm or obviously take that gift of life from someone. okay, And we could, get all, we could talk for a long time about, uh, well, both ends of the spectrum, really. We could talk about abortion at the uh, beginning stages of life, and we could talk about so-called euthanasia at the other spectrum of life. And the same basic principle applies, that we are not to do anything that is either to harm or take or stop God's gift of life, okay? That's the basic. Um, next, you shall, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. So this deals with sexual immorality uh, or marriage. And I will, I will just say this, that uh, in the New Testament, the phrase or the, one that the word that is translated usually, sexual immorality, I say the Greek word, you'll you'll understand, is the word porneia, from where we get pornography or uh, uh, immoral images or writings. Uh, And so the Bible defines sexual immorality as any sexual uh, relationship, if you understand what I'm saying, outside of marriage. Now that includes premarital sexual relationship, it includes sexual relationship obviously uh, outside of a marriage relationship by a spouse with someone who is not their spouse, it covers uh, all of that. Now if I were to ask on a Sunday morning, uh, how many of you have violated the fifth or the sixth commandment, how many of you have killed somebody, Uh, how many of you committed murder? Uh, I would hope no hands go up. And if I were to, uh, if I were to say, how many of you uh, have violated the Sixth Commandment? There might be a hand or two here or there, but I doubt very many. Now let's turn, those of you that have the scriptures, let's turn to Matthew 5. And I want to show you what Jesus did with this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Okay? Matthew 5, this is dealing now with the Fifth Commandment. Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So the people listening would have said, yep, we've heard that. That's the fifth commandment. That's what our rabbis have taught us. But look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire." Hmm. So Jesus seems to be concerned not only with the act, the outward act of murder, but also with what's in the heart. And you see, this is what he's trying in these verses to get across. Uh, Many of his hearers would have been very proud and very self-righteous that they had never killed anybody, they had never committed adultery, and Jesus is saying the standard, the the bar is higher than you may think. It's not just what you do outwardly. Let's turn uh, right here in Matthew 5. Stay there. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And again, they would say, yep, that's the sixth commandment. We've heard that. The rabbis have taught us that. Look at what he says. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now again, the same thing, right? It's not just the outward act that I spoke of earlier here. It's even what's in your heart. So what use of the law is this for, I suspect all of us, mirror, right? This is showing us our sin, isn't it? This way. God is saying, uh, this is the way I want my people to live. And then I see Jesus pointing out our sin here, right? It's not just if you kill somebody, it's if you keep on being angry with someone. In other words, unwilling to forgive someone in your heart. It's not just the outward act of adultery. It's the looking at, even just looking at someone and having a lustful thought in your head, that's violating the commandment, okay? So, uh, they were feeling pretty good until Jesus started uh, getting into their heart and realizing that, again, we, need a, we, we can't do it. We need a savior, all right? All right, we better keep going. Um, you shall not steal. This deals, obviously, with our neighbor's property. And uh, if, you, uh, if you steal something from uh, someone else... Uh, first of all, we recognize that everything uh, that people have ultimately comes from God. So if you steal something that somebody has, what are you saying about what God gave to them? I think God made a mistake. That should be mine. And I'm going to write the mistake. I'm going to take it. So who have you made to be a God again? Yourself, right? Yeah. Uh, we could go on and talk about this quite a ways. Uh, how do, how do uh, employees steal from their employer? You're supposed to be working at your computer and what are you doing? Playing video games? Ordering from Amazon? Uh, How do do employers steal from their employees? Not paying them a, a fair wage for what they're telling them or expecting them to do, right? So there are a lot of ways that People steal, if you want to speak about it in those terms, from others that we maybe don't think about, but they're very real. Okay? Uh, better go on here. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, a witness, what does a witness do in court? Now, this deals with somebody's reputation here. What does a witness do in court? When you bear witness, you're called in there to testify as to what you know to be true, right? Right? What you have seen, what you have heard, what you know to be true. Now, how do you bear false witness about your neighbor? You give testimony as to them that is what? Is either false, or at least you don't know that it's true, right? And what does that do? That slanders, defames our neighbor, right? And again, this is something that, unfortunately, is so prolific uh, in, in our society in general. We have, uh, we have uh, certain communication pieces in our society that are, are designed to do pretty much just that, pass, pass along uh, gossip or, or um, salacious news about someone. Um, and well, again, we could talk a long time about this, but there's the one case that I always quote in confirmation class, some of you may remember this, that years ago there was a charge against the uh, Duke lacrosse team, do you remember that? Uh, That they were charged, several members were charged with rape of a co-ed and those guys were all arrested. Lacrosse was done away with at the university and some years later, when it goes to trial, guess what happens? She says, "I made it all up. It never happened." Now, how many you know? How many people heard that and understood that these guys these guys were kicked out of school, their lives were shattered. We're, you know? It's like, who said it? Where do I go to get my reputation back? You know, who's, somebody said that. Some historic figure said that. And that's so much damage. James, in the, in the first chapter of James, uh, talks about how powerful the tongue is. It's such a small member of our body, but it is so powerful uh, in both ways. For good, but also can do such damage, right? And so, again, there's the old, you know, before we say something or put something in an email or put something up on Facebook or Twitter or uh, Instagram, you know, do I know, do I really know that this is true? And secondly, even if I know it's true, is it serving any purpose that I spread it around? Is it helping anybody? And finally, I just ask you to think about what's the motivation that people usually have for, for doing something like that? Attention to themselves, right? If you're at, if you're at a party, and you know some, some uh, juicy news about somebody, all the attention's on you, right? Everybody's listening to you. Makes, you. makes you very important. You've got news to share. And I really think about that, that it, again, is a self-serving kind of motivation. Or sometimes, maybe, it makes us feel superior to somebody else, right? If we pass along a shortcoming, something that, that uh, they have done, something they've failed in, somehow, strangely, it makes us feel like we're superior to them because we're not, that isn't us. Right? We didn't do that, or that didn't happen, we didn't, we didn't say that, or, or whatever. So again, just think about the motivations. And, and God is saying, don't do that. Don't pass along false information. Don't pass along information if you don't know that it's really true. Right? All right, finally, now again, here's where we, we part company. We, we separate, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then notice what follows, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now what does it mean to covet something? To want something, okay. Uh, I've often called it the passionate desire to have something. Now in our society, as affluent and as as many ways as God has blessed us, uh, is it possible to have a car like somebody else's car? Yeah, is it possible to have a house like somebody else's house? Yeah, um, is it possible to have a spouse like somebody else's spouse? Yeah, anything wrong with that? No, it's not wrong to have, want to have something like someone else. But where does it cross over when you covet your neighbor's spouse or house or any anything that belongs? that your neighbor. Because again, remember, what are we saying? God, if if they have that, who gave that to them? God himself, right? And so again, it goes back to the same kind of thing we're talking about, stealing. And so often, coveting can uh, be the first, you might say, the first in a chain of sins that follow, right? And all kinds of things, it's the first wanting to have, that passionate desire to have, what is my neighbor's? And then other sins start lining up down the path to getting whatever that is that my neighbor has, right? Might be their job too. Might be their, their position. So all kinds of things come into this, okay? So uh, these are the uh, 10 Commandments, and as I suspected, we took a lot of time on this, but these have, a, I think, a lot of application for us. And remember again, God is not saying here Uh, You know, do these things and then I will love you, or do these things and then you'll be my child. He's saying to the Israelites, I already chose you. I already brought you out of your slavery. He's saying to us, I already chose you. My son already shed his blood for you. So just live this way now. This is what is pleasing in my sight. Again, knowing that we are not going to be able to perfectly do it, but there is one who has perfectly done it for us, okay? Okay. All right, let me stop here and see. Are there any questions, any comments? This, uh, the question goes back to the Fifth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill, and the statement was made that the LCMS, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, is not opposed to the death penalty, and uh, how is this not a violation of the Fifth Commandment? Right? Is that your question? The answer goes to Romans 13, and there are, first of all, let me acknowledge that there are some in the LCMS who are opposed to the death penalty because they, they do not believe that even the government should be taking a life. But where we usually go is to Romans 13. And it says there that God established the government and that the government is God's agent or avenger to bring about, uh, to curb evil, to punish evil. Let me uh, just get the exact verse if I can find it here quickly. Uh, Romans 13. So that is the, the verse. And in the Old Testament, this is a long answer to a short question, in the Old Testament, there was uh, an official uh, role that the avenger of blood played. So if someone in your family was killed, uh, the avenger of blood would be somebody in your family who would go and, and seek out that person to, to punish, and in some cases, kill them. Uh, same theory goes to, if we're a Christian, can a Christian serve in the armed forces? where they will be using lethal uh, force and killing someone else. Yes, we, in the LCMS, they're not opposed to that also, for the same reason, Romans 13. Uh, this was a big question in the Reformation time, and Luther even wrote a tract, uh, that's T-R-A-C-T, tract, that was titled, Can Soldiers Also Be Saved? Because that was a big question. You know, are you, are you going to battle and kill someone? How can a Christian do that? And again, it's because of Romans 13. Now, there are some churches, uh, Quakers come to mind, for example, that have what's called a conscientious objection to serving in the military for that purpose. And our government recognizes that uh, and gives them a conscientious objector status. They'll either not, if we had a draft, we don't have a draft now, but if we had a draft, they would either be not drafted or put in a a non-combat role somewhere. Okay. That's kind of the shorthand answer. Yes. Yes. Self defense. Yeah. The idea of what if someone breaks into your home. Yeah. Again, this would not. We're not in opposition to self defense. Also, that's a great point. I always point that out as well. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the thank you. The the uh, word for and it's correctly translated here. Murder is usually takes along with it a premeditated kind of act. Okay. Versus uh, an accidental. You know, you're in a car accident, you slid, you know, the icy conditions, and you slid into someone else, and they died. That's totally different. And our, our laws even take that into account, don't they? There's pre, there's first degree, second degree, third degree, but that's still in the case of murder, but versus an accidental or a self-defense, as Brad was saying. Yes, yeah, so the point was that, as uh, Scott was saying, James points out, if we've broken just one part, one portion of the law, we've broken it all. Yeah, it's not... It's the old idea of God is not grading on a curve. You're not, you know, well, I do better than somebody else, so that makes me perfect. No. Just one, one in fact, we could even go further than that, couldn't we? Uh, it's the sinful condition that we are born with. The original sin that we are conceived and born with puts us outside uh, of, of, of uh, perfection in God's sight. Okay? All right, anything else? All right, we've got like five minutes at the most. Uh, i tell you what, let's, I know, I think that uh, the sermon text is go, next week here at uh, St. Paul's is going to be 1 Corinthians. So, let's jump to the gospel lesson, uh, knowing that we will likely hear about 1 Corinthians, the epistle lesson, next week. And ironically, for those of you that were here for our Wednesday midweek Lenten series, where we are looking at the days of Holy Week Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday... And I preached this last week on the cleansing of the temple that Jesus did on Monday of Holy Week. Well, guess what the gospel lesson is for next week? It's not that time. It's the first time he cleansed the temple in John 2, early on in his three-year public ministry. So let's quickly read through this and then just a few comments, and then we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, uh, John 2, starting at verse 13 and uh we'll throw in uh, it's optional to throw in verses 23 through 25 we'll throw those in too no extra charge uh verse 13 the passover of the jews was at hand and jesus went up to jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. All right, real quickly... Passover time in Jerusalem. You got people coming from far and wide to celebrate the Passover. Why would you need money changers there in Jerusalem at that time? They're bringing, The people coming from far and wide are burning their currency and they have to exchange it for the shekel. The shekel was the only currency that was allowed to pay the temple tax. Well, for that convenience of exchanging your money right there in Jerusalem, you think the exchange rate's going to be favorable to you or favorable to the temple uh, uh, group, aristocracy? The latter, yeah. Very favorable to them. So, you're coming from a far distance and you want a sacrifice. Let's say you want to sacrifice a lamb. Are you going to bring that lamb uh, 50, 50 miles to Jerusalem? No. Why? Might get hurt during the way, making it unacceptable as a sacrifice? It's a lot of trouble, you know? So, conveniently, there was a whole marketplace there, and you could, you could buy your animals right there. And guess what? They were pre-approved for sacrifice by the priests. What do you think about the price for those? Yep, through the roof. And as I said on Wednesday, the worst part about this was not just the exchange rates and the inflated prices of the animals. It was where it was taking place. This stuff used to take place in the Kidron Valley, which is just east of Jerusalem. And some years before uh, Jesus' time, the aristocracy had moved it up into the temple precincts itself, and we think into the court of the Gentiles. The only place in the entire temple structure where the Gentiles could come and worship the one true God. And it was as if the Jews didn't care. They've got all this stuff going on here. How can the Gentiles worship there at all? And in the, what we talked about on, uh, on uh, last Wednesday, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus on Monday of Holy Week cleanses the temple, he says, he quotes from Isaiah 56, and says, uh, where God says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just for the Jews. So twice he did this. And uh, quoting, you know, zeal for your house will consume me. This time he did it, they quote from that. The disciples remembered that. That's from Psalm 69. The other thing, just real quickly, Jesus says, uh, what authority do you, you give me? Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And they took it to mean this huge structure that, that uh, Herod the Great, in about 20 B.C. or so, had started to improve incredibly and, and make an incredible structure. And they must have laughed at him and said, you, it's taken 46 years to build this and you're gonna restore it in three days. And John lets us know he's talking about the temple of his body. So there's one more prediction, right? That Jesus says he's gonna rise again on the third day. Okay, just like we had last week. So uh, at any rate, uh, this uh, is on the front end of his three-year public ministry. He does it again on the back end on Monday of Holy Week. In both cases, the, the reasons are quite the same. All right, we're at the end of our time. I've got to close. <laughs> so let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.